Well, I would uh, ask you to find the Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 1. You'll find the page numbers if you need them in the uh, outline in the bulletin. As you do so, let me remind you that we believe that, uh, that the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice, what we believe and what we do. It's not man's ideas or thoughts about God, but in, in, indeed it is God's revelation to us. This morning we'll be looking at primarily just two verses, the verse, first two verses, but I want to read is by way of introduction verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1. But before we do, let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we thank you for your word, and with it, it comes with a promise, a guarantee that it will not return void, but it will achieve the, 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 the purpose, it will achieve the, the purpose that you have set before it. And Father, I pray that you would, um, by your Spirit, use it this morning to um, draw us closer to yourself, grow us in your grace, show us our need for you, and in seeing our need, may you be found. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. You know, even now, how you begin a letter matters a lot, doesn't it? If you were to get a a letter in the mail and it says, to whom it may concern, they're either asking you for money or trying to sell you something. And what you usually do is you see to whom it may concern, and if you're like me, you just throw it straight into the trash. First, I look for those, if they've included those um, labels with my name and the address on it, I like those, and then I throw it away. Um, but however, if you, if you receive one that has your full given name with your address, and then next to it, the full name and return address of the Internal Revenue Service, you're going to pay attention, aren't you? In fact, we got one of these not long ago. Um, I, I was checking the mail one day, and it was a certified letter from the IRS writ, uh, made out to the church. And my heart just started going a thousand beats a minute. I thought, we're all going to jail. That's, that's it. We're all going to jail, every one of us. And, uh, and Earl tells me it's not a big deal and all those sorts of things. And none of us are going to jail, praise the Lord. Uh, so how a letter begins makes a big difference, does, difference doesn't it? It's often that we will skip through the greetings in a letter if indeed any of you remember having gotten a personal letter in any years uh, past. But a lot of times we just skip through the greeting and we get to the end, to the juicy bits to see what's really going on. 
But I think we find that especially in a chapter or excuse me, a book like Philippians, we miss a lot if we just skip over these, these just two small verses that Paul uh, begins his letter with to the Philippians, particularly in verse two, where we find Paul telling the Philippians, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is at the same time a prayer and a benediction. A benediction doesn't have to come at the end. A benediction is uh, Latin for God's good word, or good word rather, not God's good word. Bena, good, diction, word, a good word. And so he is giving, declaring unto, as an apostle in all of his authority, declaring a benediction and a greeting to the Philippians. Grace to you, God's grace. May you experience God's grace. And it's also a prayer. May the Lord grant you his grace. May the Lord grant you his peace. See, as believers in Christ, the Philippians had received God's grace and God's peace upon their conversion. They were receiving God's grace and God's peace on a daily basis. And Paul here is reminding them, granting to them, asking the Lord for God's future grace and his future peace uh, to them and amongst them. See, I think what we'll find in our time together this morning is that the Philippians were normal folks. They were normal saints. We're going to get into what that word means in a few minutes. They were normal saints, normal folks in a normal church with normal problems. And they needed something. They needed God's grace. And they needed God's peace. Well, we find ourselves as normal Christians, normal saints, in a normal church with normal problems. And guess what? We need God's grace and God's peace. Well, who are the Philippians anyway? Well, you'll remember, hopefully, if you were here Mother's Day, we looked at um, Lydia, who was converted in Philippi. Philippi was a city uh, in Macedonia, which is um, the furthest eastern part of Europe now. And Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he stopped by in Galatia, and he picked up a, a young man named Timothy. And along with Silas and Luke, he made his way across the Aegean Sea and landed in Macedonia and eventually made his way to Philippi. Now, while he was in Philippi, we're not real sure how long he was there. The the text in Acts 16 tells us that he was there for some days, meaning that it wasn't an exceedingly short trip, but we don't think it was terribly long either. He had a very productive ministry and just a short stay there. But first and foremost, you see Lydia, the seller of purple, who was converted, and she and her whole household are baptized on that first Sabbath when they are there. But soon after that, he um, cleansed a young servant girl of an un clean spirit and her masters were not very happy with that and so he and Silas were both thrown into prison and they were beaten but that night miraculous things happened we actually sang of it earlier in uh, and can it be long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night thine eye diffused a quickening ray I woke the dungeon flamed with light my chains fell off my heart was free I rose went forth and followed thee They were miraculously freed. The Philippian jailer was stayed from killing himself and he uh, became a Christian and he and his whole household were baptized. And so by the time that that, uh, this cohort of missionaries left Philippi, they left a, a budding and growing church out of Lydia's home. And so it is to this group of people that Paul writes. A group of people, of saints, of believers in Christ who were in an important city. Philippi was an important city, a wealthy city. 
a city that had gold mines and had an important road for for communication and therefore was a, a cultured city. It was a Roman colony, and so those who lived there were given the privilege of having Roman citizenship and the ability to own land. It was an important city. And it was, a, it was a city that had entered in to partnership with Paul. See, when he left from there, apparently he went with some funds that they had provided for him that he might continue his ministry uh, in the Lord. Now, here's the thing. Paul is now writing from jail. Philippians is one of the jail letters, prison letters, Now, we're not entirely sure which prison he was in. He was either in Ephesus, or the traditional traditional view, and I think the better view is that he was probably in Rome towards the end of his life. And so he is writing from Rome to tell them, thank you. See, they had sent a beloved member of their church, Epaphroditus. That's a good um, firstborn name, isn't it? Uh, Epaphroditus. They had sent Epaphroditus to help and to care for Paul. See, in those days when you were in prison, um, I can't exactly say prison is ever a delightful experience, but certainly in those days it was a very, very bad experience. And oftentimes they wouldn't feed you. And so uh, during those days it was up to your family and friends to care for you. And so when the Philippians heard that Paul had been imprisoned, they hurriedly gathered funds and they hurriedly sent their beloved member Epaphroditus after Paul to care for him, to take him this collection so that he could buy the food that he needed and to care for his needs. And Epaphroditus stayed there in order to care for him. But somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus got sick, either along the way, on the way to Rome or Ephesus, wherever he is, or while he was there. Indeed, he almost died. Now word went back, uh, got back to the Philippians and they were really worried. He was one of their, their most beloved members. And so word has now received Paul that they are very worried. And so Epaphroditus has been healed now by the Lord and, and it's time to send him home. And when he sends him home, Paul sends a letter. And that is the letter that we now know as Philippians. It is a thank you letter. It is a missionary support letter, much like we receive um, every week at the church of our missionaries whom we support thanking us and updating us on their ministry. He's concerned for them. He loves them. It is not an impersonal letter. He knows their situation in and out. He and Timothy both. It is a letter thanking them for all that they have done. And he calls them a word that is unique. See, he writes it to the saints who are in Philippi, in Christ Jesus. Now, there are different views of saints. Perhaps you've heard this word, saint. Uh, there's a football team, the saints. So we um, use saints about to, to speak of folks who are extra godly. Um, the Roman Catholic view of saints are those who have done so well in this life following the law that, that they don't have to go to purgatory, but instead go straight to heaven. So I think that's probably a very unhelpful view of what it means to be a saint. When Paul uses the word saint here, he's talking about Christians. Every believer in Christ is a saint. If you know Jesus and love him, if you have been forgiven of your sin, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter your fight against the flesh, you are this day declared to be a saint. Because you're a saint in Christ Jesus. You are not a saint in yourself. You're, you have been declared to be holy. That's, the, that's what saint means. It's a, the word is derived from the Greek word holy or to be set apart. 
It is those who have been declared to be righteous. Those who have been declared to be clean. No matter what our struggles are or no matter our history, the God has declared us in Christ Jesus that you are no longer defined by those things. You are mine. You are a saint. You have been set apart. That's another meaning of the word saint. If you have a Bible, turn all the way back to Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, if you will. We find ourselves being addressed by uh, Moses as he is beginning the, uh, the first of several farewell addresses to God's people. He has to die before they go into the promised land. And he says this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 and following. And it's a word that uh, refers to us as well, I do, I do believe. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, why has God chosen them? Well, we get the negative answer in verse 7. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so too, we find ourselves chosen by God to be saints, declared to be his, set apart for service to him, not because of anything in us, not because of anything we've done, not because we were the most numerous of nations, but because we were the recipients of God's love, his unfathomable, deep love for us. And therefore, we have been declared to be saints. Well, it is written by two men, primarily Paul, but with him is his dear friend, Timothy, fellow worker. Now, he uses an important word to describe himself and Timothy. It's a word he only uses for himself, except in addition to three people, one of them being Timothy here is a unique term that he uses to designate himself as one especially called out for ministry to the Lord, and that's of slave. Depending on your translation here, you either have bondservant, servant, or slave. The Greek word is doulos, and it's a hard word to translate, but it does mean slave. It is one who is not worried about his own um, rights or privileges, as one person says. A slave's personal interests and ambitions have to be repressed. Everything related to the master. The title did not refer to a position of honor in the first century. They wouldn't have read this, the Philippians, and thought, oh, that's a great description of Paul. They would have been shocked, just as we are, of such a phrase. But in the upside-down world of the Christian life, a world in which we must lose our lives to gain them, a world in which we must die in order to live, a world in which we have to put for others first to make sure we're not last, and a world in which we only submit in only submitting to our master that we find freedom. There was a great theologian and he was called the silver-tongued preacher. He was such a good preacher from the fourth century, John Christosom or something along those lines. One who is a slave of Christ is truly free from sin. And if he is truly a slave of Christ, he is not a slave of any other realm. We once were slaves. Slaves of the evil one, we learn from Romans chapter 6. We have been transferred from his kingdom into the kingdom of life and light and of the Son of God. 
And so Paul is one who had been beaten, one who had gone through sufferings of all kinds, one who had given up any claim to rights on his own, but declared himself to be a servant, slave, a bondservant, a saint in Christ. He was writing to those whom he had been called to serve. He uses a a lesser term to refer to himself as slave and a, a greater term to refer to them as saint. But notice they are all in Christ Jesus. Three times in these two verses we find this phrase, Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus Christ. And once we see God our Father. For Paul, the Lord is everything. It is our source of hope. It is our source of calling. It is the source of our redemption. And as one who has been called to minister to the Philippians, as he writes his thank you note, he declares to them, imparts to them, and prays on their behalf for God's grace and peace. See, they were a church that had normal problems. They were normal saints. They had normal sins. They had normal problems. And they normally, normatively, needed God's grace and God's peace. We were talking in Sunday school this morning about joy in our 20s and 30s Sunday school class and how we talked about this phrase of, uh, that you hear a lot. And it's a well-meaning phrase that God never gives you more than you can handle. That's, that's an improper way to put it because God constantly gives us more than we can handle. Every day he gives us more than we can handle so that we will run to him and in his strength, Deal with the issues he has put before us. We need God's grace. We need God's peace every day, just like these Philippians. See, Paul knew the things they were dealing with. He knew all the problems they were dealing with, and he knew that the only way they were going to get through it is if they relied on the Lord and if the Lord continued to bless them. Now, they had received God's grace and peace. If you're a Christian here today, you too have received, past tense, God's grace and God's peace. It is by God's grace that we are saved. We could never earn our way to heaven. There are not enough good works in this world and all of eternity that we could do to make up for one sin. The math does not work. There's no way that we could cause God to love us, even as we just read in Deuteronomy 7. The reason why God chose them is because of his love. What kind of answer is that? There's nothing that was in the Israelites or nothing in us that calls God to save them or us. It is only because of God's love, his unmerited favor, his unearned love, his bountiful care for those whom he chooses. How marvelous is God's grace. That we who cannot save ourselves, we who only bring our sin to the table, that we would receive not just salvation, but that we would be declared to be his sons and daughters. That we would go from being slaves of unrighteousness and not just sitting around the table begging for scraps, but being seated at the table and being declared to be his children. Paul's clear in Philippians 3 that they had received their salvation the same way. And because they had received the salvation, they had received God's peace. We're not at peace with God naturally. We're not at peace with God naturally. We are at war with God naturally. We feel the vestiges, the the, the hanger-ons of that war still in our lives today if you're a believer. 
Because we still go back sometimes and take up arms against God and our sin and we do things against his law. We still occasionally participate. But we have been brought to peace with God. Galatians 5 tells us, or excuse me, Romans 5 tells us that um, when we were still in rebellion against God, when we're still his enemies, that God sent his son to die for us. And here's the thing, because we have received God's grace, we have therefore received his peace. And the payment for our transgressions has been paid, not by us. We're the ones in rebellion, but by the one against whom we rebel. It's an improper, uh, um, not improper, an um, incomplete metaphor. But if you think about our enemies in World War II, we were pitted against the Japanese, the Germans, the Italians, and the minor states that were allied with them, the Axis powers. But do you know who are our greatest allies now? The Germans are one of our greatest allies in Europe, and the Japanese are our most staunch ally in the East, in the Far East. We were once at war, bitter enemies, and now we are allies. How much more were we in war against our God, and yet by His grace, He has paid the price for us to be at peace with Him. They have received God's peace, but they continue to need it. They had received God's grace, and they are receiving God's grace and His peace, but they needed it because they still had problems to deal with. Anybody here got any problems? I'm sure somebody has here, and if you're the one, I'm glad you're here. We all have problems we deal with. And see, God promises not just that he has dealt with our past. We have peace with our past because of what God has done for us. We have received God's grace, but the same grace and the peace that he has given us in the past is the same grace that he promises to give us tomorrow. Yesterday, you got through the day. Maybe it was a good day for you, maybe it wasn't. God gave you grace to get through that day. What about the day before? Was it harder? But guess what? God gave you grace to get through that day. I love Philippians 1, 6, a spoiler alert for next week, um, that I am convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God doesn't give up on us. Though at times I feel like we might give up on him. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. And he gives us grace every day. His mercies are new every morning. For the Philippians, there were three specific things they had to deal with. Uh, You won't find these um, written out in summary form in bullet point fashion in Philippians, but when you read, Lord willing, Philippians out loud this week in one sitting, I encourage you to have these themes in mind because we will see them throughout our time in Philippians. There were three major issues they were dealing with. And the first is that they were facing suffering. And particularly their suffering was in view of persecution. As one commentator astutely put, said the church in Philippi was born in suffering. It was born in persecution because Paul and Silas were beaten savagely in a way that no Roman citizen could, by the way. And they were imprisoned. And because of their suffering, the gospel came to Philippi and also because of the suffering of Christ that they were saved. And this persecution apparently had continued Um, Apparently, it had not stopped, and it was part of their everyday life. We find in Philippians 4, 7, this promise of peace. A peace that is not tied to the situation, much like joy is... Uh, goes above the situation, hovers above it, not affected by. God's peace 
is available and given to saints, normal Christians, even in really bad situations. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. They needed God's grace. They needed God's peace. But the second thing they see that we see in, in Philippians is they face disunity. We, we see this in Philippians 4, 2, and 3, that apparently these two, two ladies, Syntyche and Iodia, were going at it. I mean, they were really mad at each other. And apparently their dissension, their disunity, their anger, their disagreement, we don't know the nature of it, had overtaken the whole church. And they needed God's grace to know how to deal with the situation. They needed God's grace to melt the hearts of these ladies. They needed God's grace to help the overseers, the, the elders, and the deacons, to whom this letter is also written, to know how to bring God's peace to bear in that situation. The third thing they faced was um, the danger of false teaching. Paul was concerned that false teaching might make its way into uh, the Philippian church. Particularly, he was uh, worried, as we see in, in Philippians 3, about the Galatian heresy, that we're saved not by our God's grace, but by our works. These are, these are all issues we're going to be exploring in our time in Philippians and seeing how God's grace and peace will bring peace in each one of these situations. But I ask you, what are your issues that you need God's grace and peace for? Are there pressures at work? Overloaded calendars? Illness of yourself or others? Financial hardship, struggles with sin, addiction, lack of direction, depression, anxiety, whatever it is. We are normal saints with normal problems. And God normally, normatively, always gives his grace and peace to those who seek him. The price of this, as you well know, is that the Prince of Peace had to die. The Prince of Peace had to suffer. He suffered persecution. And he was killed by those whom he Um, called his own. The Prince of Peace had to die so that we might receive grace and peace. Do you know Jesus? Indeed, it is only in knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus that we will find that we have peace with our conscience, peace with our past, peace with God. That as his people, as his children, he gives us grace in the hour of of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace and peace that you've lavished upon us as your children, that you chose us not because of anything in us. Indeed, if it were up to that, we'd be in a lot of trouble. The Lord, that you would um, save us because of your love and for the glory of your name. Lord, continue, we pray, as you have promised to pour out your grace and peace upon us. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.